Today's Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. In the Everglades, there's a way of life. It's a way of peace without stress or strife. There's a fellow there who protects these rights. Lincoln Vale of the Everglades. For rights and the homes they've made Symbol grassroots people of the Everglades There's a natural danger and a man to face Lincoln Vale of the Everglades The man on patrol in the Everglades Moving, ever moving Moving, ever moving through the Everglades busy fighting with NBC. The lawyers lost. Very interesting. What do you mean, very interesting? It was stupid. Yes, it was stupid. But it was also very interesting. It was not as interesting as it was stupid. Nonetheless, it was still interesting. <laughs> Stupid. Interesting. All right, all right. It was interesting. But it was also stupid. <laughs> This is Rick Derringer, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers at Google Tantalk, 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios at 7, 10, and 18 seconds after the hour. Good evening, Matt. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. <laughs> Good to be back in the hot seat this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I sound okay? Because for yeah. some reason I'm not... Does this, the speaker... Is it coming across okay? Yeah, you sound fine. Okay, fine. Good, 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 good. Well, I'm staring at the clock up here, you know? Right. 36 seconds after. 37, 38, 39. Anyway, all right. So, uh, yeah, don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out NostalgicRadioAndCars.com. Now, we have two guests coming on our show this evening, and we'll be with them here shortly. But uh, if you caught the beginning of the show, I was kind of doing a little play on the NBC Peacock thing. And then a friend of mine, Alan. Alan is out there. Hi, Alan. How you doing? Anyway, so he sends me this little thing because we always uh, communicate back and forth, and you know, because we're like nostalgia freaks. And he sent me this thing on this old TV show called The Everglades. Well, when I grew up in California, we used to watch that TV show. It was black and white back in the early 60s. So I decided I'd incorporate that because coming from California, you know, oh, yeah, that was cool. And then the other one I played was Flipper. And, uh, you know, because it just looks so cool to be able to, you know, jump in your little Boston Whaler and buzz around out there and have yourself a big pet dolphin. And uh, so I played that. And then, of course, uh, Gentle Ben, I didn't play, but because there really wasn't a really cool intro on that. But that was also filmed in the Everglades. I did not know that. Um, I never watched that show. Um, I was too busy watching I Dream of Genie, which was supposedly filmed in the eastern seaboard over there, like, I think, uh, near Daytona. Or no, um, I don't want to call and correct me, but I'm going to think here. Uh, Cape Canaveral, whatever that's called these days. But anyway, and in fact, there's an I Dream of Genie, I Dream, I Dream of Genie street over there because we actually went over there one time and well, we were looking at some cars and went down that street, took a little picture of it. It's right near a park. It's an actual street? Yeah, it is. I Dream of Genie. All right. No, cool. I mean, no way. I mean, yes way. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Apparently, Robert's making, making up new and exciting words. Yeah, today. yeah. Well, I, 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 and the only reason I'm doing this Florida kick thing is because is I've been here long enough, and I'm even though I'm still, you know, you can take the kid out of California, but you can't take California out of the kid. Hey, I said the same thing with me being a New Yorker. But New Yorker, right. Yeah, once a New Yorker, always a New Yorker. Damn straight. But anyway, so but this weekend I was down at, uh, at uh, Palm Beach at the Breakers for the Cavalino, which we talked about um, a week earlier on last week's show and uh, it was a pretty spectacular event just Ferraris but one thing I will say in all the years that I've been going on and off for the last six or seven years they had a really nice selection of vintage Ferraris for a change usually there's a lot of late model stuff there which you know 80s, 90s and early 2000s stuff which is uninteresting um, in the last um, five, six, seven years when they, since the two since the 258 or 458 488 uh, the F8s, the 90s, the SF, all that stuff. They and the Romas, and which is a brand new car. They got some really nice looking cars, and just just you just cannot take away um, the style that Ferrari has. You know, McLaren tries. All right, so they're fast, big deal, but they're still an ugly car. Um, Lotus, I won't even get into that. They're not really much of a car anyway. I don't even know who owns them anymore. Probably a Saab, but um, but there's only a handful. And Porsche, obviously. And Porsche, their coupes are pretty cool, and they got some pretty badass cars out there. They're bulbous-looking convertibles, and they're bulbous-looking Targas. Yeah, they just take away from the car; just really makes them look bad. And um, but anyway, but you know, Porsche's a Porsche, and Ferrari's a Ferrari, and 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 Aston Martin's got a couple of really cool-looking cars out there. Jaguar doing okay with their cars, their F-types. So there's some pretty cool, really nice cars on the market as far as. Um, you know, and and these are not really supercars like you know when you get into Lamborghinis and and you get into 
um, the Paganis and Koenig's eggs and, and weird stuff like that. But anyway, so I was down there. It was a pretty cool event. I enjoyed it. And then I went to this other event. It was called... Um, it was a supercar week event. And, uh, and it was basically... Um, some really nice looking exotics plus a mix of classics I mean, there's a 64 gto or 69 gto convertible there mark done done up as dolled up as a judge and then there was a uh, a real rare 69 shelby gt500 four speed drag pack car 430 car had oil arm, which is really really rare because usually the 70 shelby's or 69 shelby's that i've seen that were drag packs were automatic but this one was a four-speed car um, was originally jade or silver no jade green jade metallic no wait a minute silver jade which is basically like like a light green metallic and it's whoever had the car at one point in time painted it kind of a silver gray color and it looked okay but a lot of you know gobbledygook chrome underneath the hood and stuff like that but still a rare car nonetheless and then uh, the usual Corvettes and the usual 50s cars it was a really nice Woody there and uh, some other nice cars and then of course you know the usual Ferraris and McLarens and and Audis and you know neat stuff like that. So if you're into the supercar thing, you know I'm more of a classic car guy and I like vintage stuff. So it's, I mean I can't even drive these cars. You get into them and you look at them, they got this really cool high tech looking uh, stuff there on the dash and and only a handful of buttons and it makes the car do whatever it's supposed to do and it's all computers. Basically, they're, these cars are computers on wheels, you know. So. Um, I don't know. And then, you know, when you're down in Palm Beach, you know, it's like every time I turned around, it was either a Bentley in front of me, a Bentley beside me, a Rolls-Royce over here, a Mercedes over there, a McLaren over here, a Ferrari over there. I mean, it's like they're like candy down there. Pretty cool. Anyway, this weekend we got the uh, uh, Cars on the 5th at Naples. That's uh, Saturday. And then uh, there is the auction that we're going to. We're taking a couple cars down there, which is the Saratoga auction or the Naples motor car auction. We had uh, Bill, my friend Bill, on a couple weeks ago. So we'll be down there for that. And then Sunday is the Guitar Expo, International Guitar, Orlando International Guitar Expo in Orlando, which I generally go to that. And if you're a guitar guy, that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Actually, Saturday, Sunday. Friday's set up day for dealers and stuff. And also Saturday, Sunday is, uh, is uh, Sumter County's Fairground Swap Meet. And then there's uh, a Boca Nova, which is uh, formerly known as the Boca Concourse. That's in the latter part of uh, February. And then there is the Moda Miami, which is the RM deal down there in um, Coral Gables, which we will try to go to if we can. Um, the Amelia weekend, the only thing I'm going to attend there is the Works Reunion. So uh, yours truly will be there with Fastlane Travel at the Porsche Works Reunion, and that's going to be the update for the next uh, 31 days, 32 days. No, wait, less than that, because actually there's only 29 days. Hey, 29, we're, this is a leap year. So we're going to leap in the next month. No, today's the 30th, tomorrow's the 31st, so yeah, something the, like that. At the end of the next month, we're going to leap into March. Okay, hey, I, you know what? I forgot, we got a guest coming on the show. Why don't you go ahead and call I him real quick? I, I tried. I, I tried twice. He didn't pick up. I left him a message, so we'll wait to see if we can hear back from him tonight. Oh. Uh, Okay. Yep. Well, then I'll tell you what we'll do. Okay. Um, geez. Time-wise, I forgot about this. Uh, did you call that number? The, the first number for guest number one? Yeah, I did. I called it, twi- <gasps> called it twice, left him, left him a voicemail on the second call. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Anyway, Alan just corrected me. I said I Dream of Genie was in Cape Canaveral, and he just corrected me and said it was Cocoa Beach. I should know that because I'm... 
Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Cuckoo. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I've, known, I've, known, I've known that about you in a good way since the day I met you. So. Yeah. That's part of what makes the job fun here working in the Stock Degree so with Cars. Have, you never know. You never know. Well, we have Cocoa Puffs and we have Fruit Loops. So, um, yeah. Hey, I'll take that. You take Fruit Loops? Okay. Oofe, oofe. But I think I played that commercial one time on the show. You did. We did, yeah. We did, did that a while back, yeah. Internetradiopros.com if you want to try to go find the Fruit Loops episode. <laughs> Fruit Loops episode, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so we have no guests at the moment, and right. I'm debating whether we should call... Uh, number two? Number two, yeah, and we'll just talk for a while. But before we do that, don't we? Don't you want to spin the records first, or do you want to wait? Oh, wait a minute. I got it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go spin a record. All right. Let's spin it. You know what? We may have to do two, 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 drop the needle in a couple different uh, grooves right. here. Well, so let's I, do, let's do. I got the first one lined up already. Let's do, well, you know what? That, I'm saving that for the second guy. So okay. I tell you what, since we did Rick Derringer, why don't you do Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo? Give me a second to try to pull that up. Yeah, give me a, yeah, I'll give you a second to pull it up. Okay, so now what we're talking about? The car show, car events. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, on these, um, uh, the, the one of the Ferraris that was down there that I thought um, was really, really, really cool. I mean, or one of the Ferrari collect, or group of cars is how often do you see five Ferrari F40s sitting in a row? Five red Ferrari F40s. And that's saying something. That's saying something. And then there was not one, not two, but three Enzos, two La Ferraris. Um, I mean, as far as late models, those are, you know, within the the 80s, 90s cars. Ah, a phone's ringing. I think we have a guest calling him. Anyway, um, pretty, pretty impressive. And not to mention a whole bunch of 365 what am I thinking? 275 GTBs, um, short nose, long nose, four cams, some pretty cool stuff. Two NART spiders, two Daytona spiders. All right, we got a guest on the line. Okay, hey, uh, it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This is uh, my good friend Morty Backman, and he is the founder and the the guy responsible for this amazing event that they have every year in Orlando, the Orlando International Guitar Expo. I'm delighted to welcome Morty Backman. Morty, how you doing, buddy? Hey, fine, Robert. It's always good to talk to you. Uh, we're getting ready for our show. We're working on it, calling, getting calls every day from members of the public, dealers, whatever. We're going to have everything going on, thousands of guitars, uh, buyers, sellers. Um, we're, it, it's really cranking, and, you know, it gets this close. It's um, For the public, it's next Saturday, the 3rd, and Sunday, the 4th. And... Elbow to elbow, uh, want to buy, sell, trade, whatever you want to do. It's one of the yard, largest new and used vintage guitar shows in the world. Fun for everybody. Uh, Robert, I'm hoping you'll be able to come. I think you mentioned you would be able to make it, and it's always a pleasure to see you. I will be there on Sunday, yes. Uh, cool. I'm looking forward to this. So, Morty, why don't you just go ahead and uh, give us a little background, because I'm sure we got some new listeners now. Tell us a little bit about the uh, how um, Orlando International Guitar Expo, how that came to fruition, how it came to be. You know, the, the Orlando International Guitar and Music Expo is in its 36th year. Um, it, it was originally founded by uh, a guy in whatever 36 years away from today is but um he he did a really good job and then i became the the manager and the owner promoter of the show in 1999 so i've had it for 25 years and it's really fun for everybody we get a lot of family people uh 
February 3rd, uh, 10 to 6, to the public, and February 4th, 10 to 4. There'll be iconic vintage guitars. There will be affordable instruments for students. Um, young players can look at guitars that maybe they'll want when they get a little older. We, we really are a family event, and there's plenty of people that play guitar while it's going on, you know, trying them out and whatever. It's really, really a pretty energetic thing. You know, you've been there, you know. Oh, yes. It, it's a lot of people, a lot of uh, people wanting and liking guitars. And so whether you play a four-string bass, a five-string bass, or a six-string bass, or a six-string guitar, or a 12-string, like you said, there's something there for everybody, vintage yeah, and, and contemporary. You know, guitar players, uh, most guitar players are six-string players in right. general. There's, you know, if you've got three guitar guys, then you've got one bass guy for every three guitar guys. But there will be basses there. Uh, in fact, I've got a couple for sale myself. And, and so there, there are going to be plenty of instruments. And you know what else is interesting about this show, Robert, is that there will be a banjo or two and a violin or so. There will be acoustic guitars, electric guitars. There will be Les Paul, Stratocasters, Telecasters. Uh, there are even a few builders that are bringing their one-of-a-kind built instruments to display in their booth. So... I think that it would be real interesting for anyone who wanted to come and see what it's all about if they hadn't been before, and then we would welcome back all of our old customers that have been coming for many years. Well, not only that, you've got uh, amplifiers, you've got uh, effects pedals and uh, effects you know, gear. Yes, indeed. And, you know, it's, it really comes down to you never know what's going to be there. Uh, we have a lot of independent dealers. We have people coming from uh, from Sweden to buy guitars. We have a, a Japanese gentleman who's coming to buy guitars. Last year we had an Irish buyer show up. He flew in and didn't even tell us he was going to be there. And they showed up at the door on dealer load-in day. Friday is our dealer day, and that's when the dealers get all their booths set up so that we can welcome the public at 10 on Saturday morning. And we we really are going to have, I, I think it'll probably be as nice a show, as good a show, and as much fun as any of them have ever been, Robert. And you know, you've been there a number of times, so you know how busy it gets and how crazy it sometimes is. It's really, really a great thing for people who like music and who like guitars. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. And then the the thing that amazes me is the every once in a while you have some celebrities that show up there, and they come in, a, they come in kind of incognito. But it's true. It's true, yes. It's true. Uh, that's why I, play, I use Rick Derringer as, an ex, as our uh, liner for the show here earlier, and uh, because Rick's been there before. And oh, yeah. Rick used to come all the time. We had uh, Stevie Ray Vaughn's band there. B.B. King was there once. Um, We've had a, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, people. And, you know, sometimes somebody will say, hey, you know who that is over there? And we say no, and then they say, well, that's such and such, you know. So, like you said about incognito, a lot of those guys don't want anybody to mess with them. They want to come and look at really cool guitars. And they'll just, you know, put on a baseball cap and come in, and nobody ever really knows who they are. And, and that's, a, that's a really cool thing, too. And some of us, if we know them, We'll know who it is, but then we don't tell anybody. We just say, you know, they deserve that the minute or two that they're going to spend on every guitar. They deserve that time to themselves. But the regular members of the public, we get a lot of members of the public that are interested in guitars, want to sell guitars. 
and, and bring them to sell to our dealers and our buyers, and also to trade, Robert. There's a lot of trading that goes on, and we also recommend and, and encourage the public to trade to one another. Like if you saw a guy walking along and you needed a Jaguar and you had a Strat, you know, you could say, hey, man, you know, do we want to trade? And, and then sometimes that happens right out there on the floor. Well, yeah, and not only that, um, you know, because I, I, I kind of fix up these old Fender Mustangs when I can, so when I can, and I'm always looking for parts. So there's usually tons and tons of guys there with tons and tons of parts too. So there's all kinds of stuff, like you said. That's true. You know, the, the funny thing about a guitar show this year, it's about thirty thousand square feet, and it's full to the brim. And and the reality is. You don't ever know what's going to be there. And if it's guitar or instrument or pedal or, or amplifier related, there's a good chance that it'll be there because there's so many dealers and so many pieces of equipment from everywhere, from people all over the United States, guys coming from Wisconsin, California, Indiana, Illinois, New York, um, Virginia, Georgia, Alabama. We have a lot, a lot, a lot of people coming to buy and sell and trade, you know, do business, in other words. Super. Well, I will be there. Um, for our listeners, one more time, how do they find out more about the uh, Orlando okay. International they Guitar Music Expo? GuitarExpo.net. They can go to GuitarExpo.net, or they can email at GuitarExpo22 at Yahoo.com, or they could come to the Central Florida Fairgrounds, which is 4603 West Colonial Drive in Orlando, and they, if they go to their website, the Central Florida Fairgrounds website, or our website, guitarexpo.net, um, there will be lots of information for them. And, Robert, it'll be a pleasure to see you. Thank you. Uh, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on the show, and we look forward to it. And again, I want to thank my special guest, Morty Beckman, Orlando International Guitar and Music Expo. Looking forward to it. It's a treat every year, and there's always something. there's always a treasure there to find. Okay, great. Thank you, Robert. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, you know what? Now I think we need to fire up Neil Young so we can uh, get our next uh, guest on the show. And again, uh, the Orlando International Guitar and Music Expo. I said it right. I think so. Throw me a fish. Throw me a fish. You can't talk properly tonight. I I can. I can. I can. And uh, Marty Marty himself is a very good musician. And the thing that's interesting about the uh, Guitar Expo is... You would be amazed at the talent that is. I mean, I'm I'm talking guys that are just average enthusiasts, but there's some amazing talent because there's somebody always there noodling around on the guitar, and uh, it's just like you walk by, you just can't help but stand and go, man, that guy sounds uh, like really really good, you know. And it's funny to talk about celebrities. Another guy that shows up in Orlando every once in a while, and you never know, he could be there. Incognito. It's kind of hard to not see him. But Joe Bonamassa is a um, huge guitar guy, and. one of these days, we'll try to get him on the show. We've reached out. We'll see. You never know. When we do our music music segment, um, music. But anyway, is the stereo going or is it, am I hearing things? No, not yet. It is, however, right now going. It is, however. Okay, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars. We're going to play a little Neil Young for this old man right here, me. <laughs> and... Uh, 
Somebody called me that the other day. Said, "Hey, old man." I said, "Old man, old man." I, I'm looking around. I'm oh, going, we we can have a debate about that all night. I know we could. We could. You know, oh, it's a state of it, state of state of state of mind. Okay. Anyway, on that note, you're, we're going to listen to a little new young, and he's going to talk about his old man ex uh, in 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 the song. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. This is Neil Young, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. <laughs> I think you burned the tires off that one. <laughs> anyway. I think he did. <laughs> he did. We're, we're back. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'm going to introduce our next special guest for the evening. Now, I played Neil Young for two reasons. One, that was actually one of the first songs. I used, there was a place down here on, on Clearwater Beach called Charlie's Place. And it was kind of like a hang-up. But they always had rock and roll bands, live music and stuff. And even though I wasn't old enough to get in there back then, they had a pinball machine called uh, Aces and Kings. I think that's what it was. Anyway, and um, it was a Williams machine. And I used to go down there and play there. And... Uh, Neil Young, this song used to come on. It was right about 71 when I moved to Florida. So I wanted to play that song. And then, of course, our guest is a gentleman that I just met this past weekend. He is the founder of uh, Supercar Week, which takes place in South Florida. We're going to have him tell us all about it. And his name is Neil. So I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Neil London. Neil, how are you? Very nice, Robin. How are you doing? Pleasure to speak with you. Absolutely. I, I forgot to mention that Neil also used to be in the music industry. So, Neil, why don't you, for the sake of our listeners, tell us a little bit about your background and, and where you're from and, and your musical... Um, uh, uh, blah, 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 what's my word here? Background. <laughs> That's what I was looking for. <laughs> well, it's uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was actually... Born in a taxi cab by Mike the Cop on a blizzard, Valentine's Day, 1948. Wow, that's on February 14th. February 14th, coming up. Yeah. My birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Born in Brooklyn, uh, post-World War II. My parents were able to buy a home out on Long Island on the South Shore. So moved to, at one years old, I moved to a little town on the South Shore called Elmont uh, on Long Island near the south, I guess near like Long Beach, Valley Stream, is, if you know Long Island at all, the, the five towns area. And I was fortunate. 
I got to say, growing up um, in a suburban area, middle income, was really something special during the 50s. And uh, I had great parents. My dad was an electrical engineer. My mom was a fashion designer and a pianist. Oh, wow. And my grandmother played piano. And hence, that's really kind of what was the stimulation and the inspiration to start to play music a little bit. And um, when my parents asked me what instrument I wanted to play, I said drums. And they said, no way, we're not going to have that noise in the house. Start on piano. And if you do great on piano, maybe we'll figure out something else. So I started at five years old, piano. Mrs. Palumbo used to come to teach me piano. And I got to tell you, for young kids that I would have preferred to be outside playing stickball with my friends, Mrs. Palumbo was gorgeous. And even at five years old, huh. I fought to sit next to Mrs. Palumbo on my piano bench. <laughs> so I played piano. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm, even today, I still have the keyboard and I, I can tinkle around on it. I'm not a great pianist, but I can compose on it. And still today, for some of my my social media videos, I'm recording original music rather than licensing music. And it has to do a lot, goes back to my musical roots. So eventually, so I played piano. Eventually, my parents said, okay, well, you play piano. What other instrument do you want to play? I said, I want to play drums. <laughs> I said, no way. You got too much noise. What else would you like to play? So I said, how about saxophone? So they said, great. And at 10 years old, with little people carrying a baritone saxophone and a tenor saxophone to school every day, it was not my idea of fun. <laughs> However, I did learn sax, clarinet, and flute at a very young age. So now I had piano, at least, you know, I had some musical theory. And now I played some, you know, sax, clarinet, and flute. I wasn't a big fan of it, though. I wasn't really, I didn't really like carrying that damn saxophone around with me. So eventually I said, can I play guitar? And they said, yes. And this was really, I know your show has a lot to do with music and how, how you integrated cars and music over the years. I can't wait to hear from you how you've done that. <laughs> but, as a, but as a young kid, playing guitar was, at the beginning of what we would call electric guitar. Mm -hmm. I mean, pri in 1954, 55, 56, what I'm talking about, I mean, there was Les Paul and Mary Ford. Elvis was coming up, but I mean, I don't even can't remember if Elvis was even there yet. But when I asked my, my father to um, buy me an electric guitar, we went to the local music store, and things were very expensive. I remember we were looking at a Fender Jaguar guitar around 1958, 59. And it was like $400, which Ooh. was pretty expensive. I mean, it was, it was pretty expensive for, for a kid or even for any, any homeowner, you know, in the 50s to really lay out 400 bucks for a guitar. So my father, brilliantly enough, he went to a Sears catalog. Uh -huh. And he found, he found a harmony, like solid, it, was, it wasn't quite a full solid, it was like a hollow body solid electric guitar. And it was a cool guitar, I gotta tell you. So he bought me that guitar for $110, and a silver tone, which was Sears 
Sears brand. Sears brand, Silvertone Electric, yep. <laughs> and I had my Harmony guitar and my Silvertone amp with a tremolo and a reverb, and I was in heaven with that freaking guitar. Now, as you know, solid body guitars can be pretty heavy. I mean, pick up a Les Paul, I mean, things may weigh 20 pounds. I mean, this thing was light as a feather, this, this old Harmony. And from there, my music teachers in high school, as I got from junior high school to high school, they realized I played guitar, and they asked me if I would if I would play bass for them because it seemed that they needed string players. And in the early '60s, I think a lot of the schools, uh, high schools and colleges, were developing string departments like the orchestra, and it was a way of them raising money for their music departments. And I was willing to go. I said absolutely. I, I picked up. I they gave me an upright bass. Oh wow! German bow. It's a German bow upright bass, if you could imagine, at 11 years old. That's tall. That's but almost six feet. That was, yeah, the thing was like... <laughs> <laughs> it was but I actually liked playing bass. I mean, they told me that if I could play German bow bass, I'd be in demand for the rest of my life because very few Americans play German bow for some reason. It's a different way of holding the bow on the bass. So I did. I played German bow bass. I played an orchestra. Because I played that, I got a full music scholarship to Kent State and CW Post out on Long Island. And my parents were thrilled about it. And they said, if you stay here in New York, we'll buy you a car. My, my mom, she didn't want to lose her son. And she said, well, so I went to CW Post for the first year or two. And I was on full scholarship there, thank God. And um, I played upright bass guitar. I stopped playing sax, clarinet, and flute, but I was learning a little bit of trumpet and flugelhorn, which I always admired um, the darker sound of a flugelhorn compared to the brilliance of the trumpet. And um, I played. I was, a, I was a club date musician from the time I was 16 till I was 32 years old. And I played multiple instruments. I mean, working in New York at the time, I don't know how many of your listeners are from New York, could appreciate the New York entertainment or music scene. Our local union there was 802, by the way, if anyone was a member of the musicians' union throughout their life. And it was fascinating because there was a big ballroom that was created during World War II. It was called Roseland. And it was where 802 had its headquarters. And on Wednesdays, Roseland became what they called the floor. Like if you came to town, I say you played whatever instrument you played, you wanted to get a gig for the weekend. On Wednesday, you went to the floor. And it was Roseland, and there was a guy on the stage, and he'd be sitting there all day long. We need a trumpet player. We need a clarinet player. We need an accordion player. And, and all the band leaders around the New York metropolitan area that we had house gigs, whether they were hotel bands or club day, wedding and bar mitzvah bands, everybody met there. For a couple of hours and they picked up their weekend gigs and as a young kid i was really fortunate i was embraced because i played many instruments i was embraced by some of the older musicians that weren't from the rock and roll field and what they would do is like a club date musician that was doing a wedding or a bar mitzvah or, or, or a cotillion ball or whatever he had a really kind of solid band guitar bass drums a couple of horn players but they were older guys. They were guys in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. 
and they could not play rock and roll to save their ass. I got to <laughs> <say. laughs> as much as as much as these guys all became my mentor, and thank God they kind of adopted me uh, and taught me the standards and how to swing, how to play Latin. I mean, how to play ethnic music. I mean, during the week we'd be playing Greek, Syrian, Israeli weddings, and the weekends it was just the typical stuff. But doing club dates in New York was a unique thing because not many young musicians wanted to do that. We all wanted to play rock and roll, and we all wanted to play jazz. I mean, growing up, I was listening to big band stuff, you know, of course, like Buddy Rich, but before him, you know, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. This stuff was really moving music. And then it started to break into more combo stuff, uh, I guess the late 50s, early 60s, like the Jazz Brothers. And then who was it, the, the guy that came out with um, trumpet player that started to play the... Herbie, uh, Herbie Hancock? Uh, Herbie Hancock. And, well, we play keyboard players, but, but Herbie and then Chikoria. Chikoria, right. But, I mean, but then you had these, like, all of a sudden jazz became long form. You know, all of a sudden there were long orchestrated albums. I'm trying to think of it. Land of Make Believe, Chuck Mangione. Oh, Chuck Mangione, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden now it was like the whole side of an album it was like a beautiful score. I mean, it, was, it wasn't just a song anymore. So I, I grew up during this transition period where early on I was listening to my parents, you know, their Sinatra albums, their, their big band stuff, you know, uh, really incredible singers, you know, Tony Bennett, you know, and stuff like that. But I started to gravitate towards really the big band sound, really captivated me. And while I was in the middle of doing club dates around New York, like 1964, five, six, seven, I was adopted by his band leader. His name was Lester Lannon. Did you ever hear about him? No, no. Tell us. Lester was a guy from Philadelphia that made his way to New York and almost had no rhythm whatsoever. But he was a great businessman. And Lester became literally the house band of almost every major uh, hotel in New York City. And he kind of adopted me because I could play great rock and roll guitar. I was a really good rhythm player. I, I really am terrible at lead. I, I never kind of conquered how to play lead well, but I was a really great, very strong rhythm player. And I sang. So these, these society orchestras, they would hire me as a secret weapon. Like they'd have like a, I'm not kidding, we'd have a 25-piece band. Had a, I mean, like six trombone, five trumpets, full, you know what I'm saying? Full, like six or seven back section, and sometimes strings, full, full rhythm section. So Lester found out that I could play bass and guitar. And he hired me all the time to kind of, especially on the weekends, to play his biggest jobs because I would play bass for the normal society stuff. And then when the crowd wanted something rock and roll, I mean, in rock and roll those years, what was rock and roll? It was maybe. Um, light my fire by the doors <laughs> or <laughs> proud, proud, Ma proud Mary or you know something of that yeah. nature you know and we would kick ass I mean just being able to play strong rhythm and have a drummer that could follow me with a bass player the rest of the band would take it easy and we'd knock the house down and then after the rock and roll song it would go back to a mambo <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> or, or, or a rumba or somebody would play Havana Gil or whatever the hell so club dates where most of the young musicians would never ever think to have played club dates because it was too square and too corny. I actually so glad I did that because I learned about music and musicians because every week I played with fresh players. It wasn't like you had a band. You were contracted out. I was the bass player that night. 
I was the guitar player that night. Sometimes I was the drummer for that gig. So doing club days, you were forced into playing with new musicians almost every weekend. I thought as a young kid, man, it was such a learning experience. And most of my friends that were just in rock and roll bands, they said, how could you play that crap? How could you go to a wedding and, and play, you know, feeling? <laughs> like, well, I didn't mind, honestly. I was like playing music. That's what counted to me. Well, you're so almost... After, you know, you were almost like a, 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 a sessions musician in a way, only out in the real world, in the, in the open, so to speak. In the open. And, and you know what? That's who played the club dates. Well, the, the greatest session musicians in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Philadelphia, that whole corridor, that's who was playing the weddings because it paid very well. I mean, I'm not kidding. We would do, I mean, I'm talking about like 1964. As a guitar player, I was owning almost $2,000 a week playing guitar on the weekend. That's phenomenal. Back I mean, then? In 1964, if you made $10,000 a year, you were affluent. I mean, you know, upper middle class, let's call it. Anyway, I, you know, it was a learning experience. And, you know, when you're young, you don't necessarily appreciate certain things. And I certainly didn't appreciate um, the value of what I was doing to a certain degree. And, um, you know, you earn a lot of money as a kid, you spend a lot of money as a kid, you know. <laughs> and which brought me into, like, listening and playing anytime I wanted. I just had a gig. The contractors knew me. And if I wanted to play, I would call and I'd say, what do you got this weekend? And I was fortunate. They'd hand me one, two, three, four gigs for the week. And I made my living. And the rest of the time, you know, I just hung out with my girlfriend or my wife and just had a really nice life in the New York tri-state area but I'm, I'm really meaning one of the things i want to bring up because young musicians today what was very important that i survived that most didn't is that most bands don't make it you know everybody the young kids they're fighting to put a band or a group together and they're going to be the next whatever we're going to be the next kiss or we're going to be the next beatles i look at music in a, a different way i just wanted to play every day that i could play was really didn't matter what I was playing cha-chas. I'm not kidding. I mean, most of my friends said, how could you How could you put on a tuxedo, go to a catering hall, and play for a wedding? And I said, man, they're, they're people too. It was fun, you know? So what I really got out of my, my, I guess, my adolescence period of time, that period when I was like 15, 16 years old, until we graduated high school, was I had zero prejudice about music categories. And I rallied to play ethnic jobs, Latino jobs, and belly dance jobs. I mean, just as important. When I had a rock and roll gig, I, I loved it as well. But no more than playing for the opening night of the Broadway show at the Tavern on the Green in Central Park. I mean, this is like spectacular stuff. I did the opening night parties for, uh, remember the Broadway musical Hair? Yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar. Wow. Because one, one of the contractors, one of the band leaders I worked with, he had the, he was the house band at Cabin on the Green. So when they needed something that was a little more rock and roll, of course, it helped that I had long hair. Because <laughs> I, I kind of looked the part as well. Uh -huh. So for a society orchestra to hire me for the evening, they got a built-in secret weapon. Like the crowd already knew, it. wow, this band can play rock too. You know? And... It was kind of fun. I mean, I had a really fortunate music career up until the point where 
I really got tired of performing. I mean, I mean, I, was, I have an engineering background as well, so I always had great gear. I mean, I think I was the first person in New York to have an Echoplex, <laughs> if you know what that is. I'm an familiar Echoplex. with the term, but I'm not familiar with it. Uh, probably if you tell me about it. It's a, it's a tape delayed Echo. It was, it was designed by uh, Gibson. It was a hybrid between Guild and Gibson at the time, but it was like a two-minute tape loop where you could slide the recording and playback head was slideable. You could adjust them manually. So you could create the, the time difference between when you would say hello and to when the repeat was. Hello, oh, hello, okay. hello, hello. Interesting. And this added, it added an amazing breadth to vocals and to certain instruments. Like when a sax player would play into an echoplex or a flute player, it was like out of this world. It was just another dimension of sound. Anyway, so I, you know, I used to come with a giant amplifier. Some years I'd have a, I guess like a Fender, whether I have a, a dual showman or a bassman. And then uh, there was a company that came out with it. They had like rolled and pleated leather. It was a custom. Custom, yeah. Mm -hmm. It had like rolled and pleated like leather, top and a bottom. Like there were 200 watt amps. They were incredible. I mean, you know, so growing up from my little silver tone amp in my basement to playing like some of the greatest venues in the, like certainly on the East Coast with giant amplifiers, with an Echoplex, singing my ass off, playing, and playing with really, like you mentioned, session players. So imagine if you're just a freelance guitarist and you're stepping up, and even if you have to play a song, like a, an old standard, like say, Proud Mary or something, to have six trombones, five trumpets, and seven saxes blowing riffs behind you, <laughs> it was like the Queen Mary going down the street. Well, you know, Neil, it sounds like my takeaway from, from just listening to you, and I love the story, you were truly passionate about playing music. And it didn't matter who, what, where, or when. It was you were passionate about it. So, And then the, 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 the fact that you could play such a variety of music takes all the dullness out of it, you know, because sometimes it gets repetitive. I mean, you talk about session musicians, session bands. Let's just, I'll use Doobie Brothers as a good example, and probably most notably Santana. Those guys, because I had, I've had them on my show, and I know that they got together, they were just jam bands that played, you know, at, at the local, local dives, you know, the, 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 the right. bars, and, you know, and then they just, they got so popular and, and they had a good manager. Uh, Bruce Cohen, friend of mine, used to manage the Doobie Brothers, they became very, very successful. And uh, and, and and that's very significant, too. And I'm sure you can tell stories about that, but it's I I, I truly, you know, um, your story is fascinating. It really is. And and you, and you can feel the passion in your in the way you're, 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 you're telling the story. It's great. I mean, you know, from an early age, you know, thank God. To, I mean, it was my, the influence from your parents for all of us is really tremendous. I mean, what, what, I find, what I find lacks a lot today, kids are kind of separated emotionally from their parents. Maybe there's just too much going on in the world. But my, my mother and my grandmother, my father was an engineer, was very busy working. But it was really, I think, the, the women in my family, my grandmother and my mother, who both played piano very well, by the way, um, that they, they kind of egged me on. They gave me the nod, you know, like, you, if you want to do that, what do you want to do is really what they would say. And I said music. And, you know, I emulated them to a small degree, but 
you know, my mother was playing like Hungarian Rhapsody. I, I wasn't really interested in playing classical music, even though early piano, you kind of forced into doing that. But but I was living in a contemporary world in doing the, the 50s. I was born in 48. So by the time I was 10 years old, the world had become, you know, Big Bapa. I mean, rock and roll. Those, those records were really cranking out music, music and dance music. So by the time, you know, I think... Santana must have released his first album as I entered into college. So I remember visiting a friend that was starting college in Rhode Island, and he just gotten the album. So it must have been 66, I believe, when Santana's first album, Evil Ways, yes. came out. Mm-hmm. And wow, did that blow my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, number one, because I, I suck at playing lead guitar, and that was just like the most realized guitar being I've ever heard. <laughs> it was oh. like the Dr. Lama started to play guitar. <laughs> and so it cracked me. So hence that, you know, 66, 67, a couple of years later, I married for the second time without going to too much of my history. And my wife gets a job managing the Fillmore East in New York. Oh boy. And, and Bill Graham's, what was called the Millard Agency, was Bill's talent agency and to me I'm you know I'm a young New York City brat you know playing music everywhere you know my wife's name was Mary she was a darling wonderful woman and she really was impressed not so much with the music industry the music industry is kind of tough but what she liked was Bill the fact that part of Bill's mission was to introduce the listening audiences to new music so he so if you look at the, the billboards or the or the concert posters of Bill of the history of the Fillmore East or the Fillmore West, you'll see that it's very counterpoint. I mean, he'll have like Santana, but then he'll have like you know ten years after, or he'll have um, Herbie Hancock or Miles Davis with an organ a Bach organ recital. He he was forcing onto his audience to listen to music that they would not normally have listened to. Because they would come to see one act, but he was forcing the second act on them to grow their, their let's call it their musical database. You know? And Mary, so I had a chance, I was really lucky. I mean, I, I had totally free reign of the Fillmore East. I can walk in any time, any day. There'd be bands in there rehearsing all the time. And one of the things I loved most about it, if you remember things like the Fillmore, um, they championed things like visual and optical effects behind the bands. Like if, if you went to see whoever was playing there that night, there'd be like a kaleidoscope of, of imagery going on behind the bands. And this became, my two favorite groups were two groups. One was Joe's Light, and the other was called the Pig Light Show. And I'd go up into the, up, up into the booth, and I'd see what they were doing organically was, was masterful. It was yeah, there was no digital stuff going on. So it was all like alchemy created in the moment in an organic way. We'd have these like giant Petri dishes and we'd be floating different colored liquids in them. And then we'd be throwing an Alka-Seltzer in it to foam them up. Oh, and wow. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the overhead projector would be projecting this on the band. Man, it was, I mean, I don't know. I come from the sex, drugs, and rock and roll years without going into my own history of what that was you didn't need drugs if you went to the Fillmore you, you were tripping out on the music and the optics 
Now I want you to hold. I, I want you to hold that thought because I was really into psychedelic music. I've never. I've never. I'm not a druggie. Never did, got into that stuff. But I could. I could dig all that stuff. But what I want to tell you is we are up against the clock. So what I'd like to do. Neil, is this this part really fascinates me? Would you be willing to come back next week so we could do part two? Because I do this very often with people if we get into something, and it, and I think it's, I find it interesting. I think my listeners find it interesting because we are pretty. We we do a lot of music on this show, and when you're talking about the Fillmore East, and of course I come from San Francisco of the Bay Area, so we had Fillmore West out there, and Graham was extremely well known, and the bands, and I'm sure you've got some great stories. Would you would you come back next week and show us some more stories with us? Let's try it. We'll see if we can do it. I'd like to. We'll see if the schedule permits. Yeah, 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 yeah. And not only that, but then we can talk a little bit more about that. We can get into uh, Supercar Week and some of the stuff that's going on down there. And uh, I think your brother... Um, is going to be in Naples this weekend because I'm going to see him. I'm going to be there for the for some of the stuff going on there, the auction and maybe cars on the fifth, and then uh, we can share some stories about that. Yeah, my my brother's a great drummer, by the way. Yeah, he. I didn't know that. And when you, when we were talking the other day, because um, I knew you said you were, he, and we were talking about music, and I said, "What do you play?" And he says, "Drums." And I go, "Whoa, okay, cool." Well, but, that was like the Cornell. After all those years, remember me telling me my parents said, "What do you want to play?" Yeah, they kept saying drums. They kept saying, "No, no, 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 no." Yeah. Well, by the time I was seventeen, they asked my brother what he wanted, and they said drums. And they said, "Well, since your brother plays everything else, we'll let you play drums." <laughs> and they put him in the basement with a drum set, right? Dude, you have no idea what what fun we had. <laughs> so, thanks for very much. It's great to be on your show. Uh, hello to your listeners and. Go to supercarweek.com. Okay. Neil, you take care, and uh, we'll look forward to having you on the show next week, and uh, I want to hear some more great stories. Thank you very much for coming and sharing some of this, some of your past with us. Thank we appreciate it. Nice, nice to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday for the most legendary and fascinating names in motorsports and music. Hey, there's a couple big car shows going on. Don't forget to check out our website. Big shout-out to my friends at Fast Lane Travel. Big shout-out to the friends down there at uh, Naples Motor Car. We're going to be down there. Cars on the 5th in Naples. Uh, my friend Neil with uh, Supercar Week, which is on the east coast of Florida, down there, West Palm Beach, Fort Lauderdale area. A lot of really cool stuff. Check out his website. In the meantime, everybody, hey, get out and drive your cars. Stay safe. Hey, I'm not hearing any music in the background. Is that, am I deaf?